Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Nick Gosling, Executive Director of the Libertarian Christian Institute. With me today is Dr. Jamin Hubner. Jamin holds a Ph.D. from the University of South Africa and is currently founding chair of the Christian Studies Department at John Witherspoon College in Rapid City, South Dakota. He is also our first guest on the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Today, we'll be talking about libertarian Christian scholarship, the state of Christ in the academy, and what the future may hold for libertarian and Christian academics. Uh, We'll also be making a special announcement pertaining to an exciting new program of LCI. Jamin, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Nicholas. It is uh, a great privilege to be here and uh, to be the first guest of all things, too. So um, really appreciate it. And um, I I have to confess, however, that I didn't listen to all three episodes yet of this podcast. <laughs> so I got through the first one and a half. So if I if I repeat some things you've covered, I apologize. No, it's great to have you here. And uh, don't worry about that. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting. You and I actually, we just met for the first time this last summer, but we know some of the same people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're friends with Josh Feinberg, and Josh is now on the LCI advisory board, and his younger brother is my best friend. So that's kind of interesting that right. we had that connection. For sure. Yeah, so, um, yeah Josh uh, was in was I think the only person who could kind of be in my wedding for all the people I asked. They were either overseas or busy or something. So, uh, yeah, Josh and I uh, uh, go back a few years, or I don't even know how long it's been now. But uh, And then, yeah, we met at, at Austin, and and uh, I think it was over lunch or something, we began talking about your, uh, your experience in the financial world and learning uh, different things there. And so... Yeah, I, I that one event I I met so many different people. It was it was really great. Yeah, it was certainly a great conference. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your background. You you've actually kind of taken an interesting uh, career journey, and so you're a professional theologian. Tell us a little bit about kind of your upbringing uh, and how you you got to where you are in in academia today. Well, I guess. I'll start kind of with the earlier years. I grew up on a farm and ranch in southeastern South Dakota, and I was the youngest of four, and grew up, uh, you'd say, kind of a Christian conservative uh, household. Um, and uh, my parents were very hardworking uh, German entrepreneurs uh, who've they've done everything from restaurants to retail to real estate, uh, mainly in, in in their their small town environment, and. Uh, uh, really have been blessed with a, with a, with a great, a great home. And, and so, um, I, I guess I got into theology in my last two years of high school. It was sort of unexpected. Uh, but 
I'd always sort of been discontent with the stale models and sort of uh, dead state of the church, uh, at least in from what I could see. And I knew there was something better, you know, as I read the scriptures, you know, there's something alive about it that I was missing. And so uh, I guess that a number of different experiences kind of led me into studying things that I thought had more eternal value. You know, I could just take over the farm. I could do real estate uh, like my my dad and um, and get into that world. But I was just too curious, uh, you know, after doing some reading that I, I just realized how much I didn't know and I wanted to know more. And uh, but, you know, I, I still had interest in a lot of a lot of practical uh you know more more immediately um hands-on things that uh maybe my family you know was interested in and so i went into college as a theology major and a political science minor and uh that that continued for i think a year and a half or two years uh before i dropped the minor and uh I, I was the head of the the college Republicans uh, for a year, and I think it was kind of at that point that I became disillusioned with the the whole state of affairs with regard to contemporary American politics. Uh, I had to, you know, if if, if I'm going to lead a college group and get in front of people or call people up, I better have a good reason for doing it. And I guess I didn't have that. I couldn't really find it. I mean. I knew that uh, things like socialism wouldn't work out very well. Uh, you know, I could, I could, you know, regurgitate some things I heard on the radio by Rush Limbaugh and others that I listened to for hours in the tractor. Uh, but, you know, there was a lot of unanswered questions, and so I just sort of, uh, I, I, well, it seemed like going into politics, as, at least as I understood it, was, you know, if I could put it in a sentence, sentence, it's like trying to manipulate large masses of people. I mean, that's basically what the business you'd be going into. And I had no interest in doing that. Um, and so I, I was more of a, a truth seeker and a curious person and, uh, you know, wanted to, to search things out instead of having to, to constantly please audiences. Now, you know, being in the academy, you're, you're doing the same thing, you know, in different ways. You're, you always have different constituencies to please. Uh, and, uh, but it's, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of, a lot of twists and turns along the way. I, I listened to some of your stories, uh, by, uh, you know, Jason and you and, uh, Doug, and I, I share a lot of similarities with that, that narrative, but I can't quite, you know, paint a coherent, um, a picture probably as, as you could, it, I can't find like a, like a, like a year or a moment where I, I said, okay, I'm, I'm disillusioned with the political status quo. I want to know more about economics and I consider myself libertarian. Um, it was more of a gradual process and, um, uh, probably began like a lot of people just with that, um, uh, dis disenchantment, you know, with, uh, political rallies and the, you know, the, the, the shameless indulgence in, <laughs> in 
all of the propaganda and 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 stories that 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 are made up during the election season. I, I remember going to a a rally where George Bush was in, I think Sioux Falls, and I can't remember what year it was, and I can't remember if he was with John Thune, you know, who's a Republican senator for South Dakota, or not. But I just remember being in the front row, and I sh- I shook George Bush's hand, uh, and. And 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 seeing all these people behind me was with this this herd mentality, this this just the spirit that overcame everybody there, uh, and then seeing a, a paparazzi, a, a photographer for a journal, you could see his reactions that he was like he was just disconnected, he wasn't part of this, and so I had you know I was looking at at both, I was looking at the crowd and experiencing this, and and looking at this photographer who's just there to take pictures. And it's like, okay, so this person's outside of this experience. Should I be too? I mean, is is this a conscious choice I'm making, you know, to participate in this sort of swarm activity uh, that we witness here in, in American politics? So I don't know. There's a lot of things like that that I could probably point to that, that you know, crack the soil up, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I got into, I, I did a, Bachelor of Arts in Theology, and then went went to seminary and did an MA in religion. And I eventually came to to want to teach as a professor. And that meant I had to do a doctoral degree, even though I thought it was a waste of time and money. But hey, finish that, you know, and um, and, and, and doing all the different things. I've, I've come to appreciate a lot of aspects of the academic world after, you know, participating in various committees and boards and things and publishing. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of attachments, too. So, I don't know if that helps helps it out a little bit. And you look at my CV and you say, like, what, what, what you know, I, I have to make so many different CVs to different job applications because there's, there's, it, it's so all over the map. You know, it's like, okay, so you went and spoke on, uh, you know, f- uh, a Christian uh, feminism in the late 1700s at this conference in Canada, and then you went and spoke on libertarianism in Austin, Texas. <laughs> And then you know, wrote a book on apologetics. And it's, it's you know, it's all over. But there, there's reasons behind that. But it would take a little while to explain. So, um, but yeah, I mean, interest in economics and always having an interest in uh, synthesizing and trying to figure out the relationship between organizations of large people, government, church, whatever, and Christian thought. I guess has always sort of been uh, with me. So hopefully that sort of explains a little bit. Yeah, you know, Jamin, it's one of the things that's really interesting is you mentioned meeting George W. Bush some years ago, and uh, one of the things that actually just came through the news cycle I saw earlier today is one of Bush's daughters is now out raising money for Planned Parenthood, and uh, Franklin Graham put out a statement basically saying this is like you know raising money for Nazi death camps, and mm-hmm. that, which, which may well be true, uh, but what I'm thinking to myself is, why wasn't Franklin Graham opposed when George W. Bush was starting all these wars in the Middle East, which displaced mm-hmm. millions of Christians and led to the death of millions of Christians, as well as as non-Christians as well, who, I mean, we, we must also be concerned about, about unbelievers, because at some point in, in all of our lives, we were unbelievers before we came to the faith. Uh, so... I mean, it's it's good that you know some people in the religious right are are calling out 
uh, Planned Parenthood, but where was this concern with with the wars when George Bush was the quote unquote evangelical president? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, as I was listening to your story, I mean, I I couldn't help but think of like Socrates in in the Republic. So it's kind of like you know, you're around all these guys who were sort of like the sophists, and they all just want to win arguments and win over the masses and mm-hmm. always be on top. And you're kind of in this uh, mindset of, I want to be the truth seeker. I just, I want to contemplate mm-hmm. the true, the good, and the beautiful and lead where, uh, where the truth follows. So you've certainly taken uh, an interesting journey there. I think it, it resonates with, like you said, where a lot of us have come from in our, in our Christian walk and, and in the way that we uh, look at our, at our politics. So as a, a, a Christian libertarian academic, um, what do you kind of see as the, the development of libertarian Christian thought, particularly as it, as it pertains to scholarship and, and academic theology? So, I mean, I know we can go back to the ancient world, and there's certainly a lot of libertarian uh, insights and impulses that we can see in the patristic writings. Uh, but throughout throughout church history, and I mean, this is something that that I talk about uh, quite a bit. Um, there's there's sort of been various competing strands of thought as it pertains to Christianity and the state. But really, when you go mm-hmm. back to uh, pre-Constantine, we we see a very strong libertarian basis right there at the beginning of the church. So, what do you think about mm-hmm. that? Well, I, th- I think I'll just pick up from your last uh, sentence. I think you're you're generally right. I mean, a lot of people are going to say, well, this is anachronistic. Of course, it wasn't libertarian. Uh, how could it be? You know, libertarianism didn't exist until, you know, 50 years ago or some something, you know, ridiculous like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, how, how, how do we describe the 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 character, the tone, the message, the embodiments of the early church? When it was so anti-statist, it was so critical of using political power uh, to achieve various purposes, whether they're good or bad, and uh, was very interested in in voluntary organization and uh, freedom, because that is the basis of a lot of other Christian virtues such as generosity and giving. Uh, there's no such thing as as giving and being generous if you don't own anything, right? I mean, property rights are assumed in that. Just as with stealing is wrong, you know, you're assuming there's something called yours and 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 mine. So, uh yeah, I mean, all all the basic elements of of a very uh uh organic society has been uh demonstrated through the incarnation and the uh, teachings and character of the early church, and we read about that. And there's a lot of different metaphors for it, and they're 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 not all organic and living like a body of Christ or uh, you know a, a vine and different things like that. But um, you, you definitely have that impulse early on, and yeah, it it gets it gets lost, you know, a couple hundred years later, and when Christianity becomes legal and not just legal you know, after 311, but uh, becomes 
united with the state, which is just such a radical turn of events from the previous 300 years. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you've, you've reviewed this on, on an earlier podcast, and uh, I think that's something that's, that's sort of missing. And uh, something that, that just is it's something that's really occurred to me and something I want to study more on is, is Jesus scholarship. And how, you know, academics are obsessed with different subsets and different different readings, right? You know, for the last 50 years, everybody's writing papers and presenting things on, you know, a post-colonial reading of uh, this text, uh, a post-structuralist reading, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a, a transgender interpretation of the Book of Ruth or whatever. You know, there's so many different subsets and... Um, and uh, obscure readings of different things. But the thing that's missing from all this that I find very interesting is there's no, at least that I can find, there's no, uh, you know, non-statist readings of the Gospels. Uh, there's, there's something close to it in some New Testament scholars because they have to. A good New Testament scholar is going to realize that in the original context, oh my goodness, uh, Jesus in the early church didn't want to participate in all these things going on and uh, didn't want to have really anything to do with the state. Uh, it was a, a democratic society. They had elections for the, the, the senatorial class. We don't have, Jesus wasn't running for office. Uh, we don't have really record of hardly anybody running for office in these things. And so I would like to study more the, the historical Jesus literature and to just, just ask the simple question, what, you know, was Jesus really was he just critical of the empire, the Roman Empire, and just critical of the Caesars of his day, or of the government in general? I think that's a legitimate question. Now, a lot of scholars, for obvious reasons, aren't going to be asking that. It's pretty radical, although, you know, a lot of academics tend to try to push the, the envelope to, you know, create something novel. But in this case, you know, you're going to be labeled, a, what, an anarchist or a libertarian, some other dirty term, and good luck finding a publisher, right? Good luck finding, a, you know, a, a, a talk at, at the National SBL conference, you know, or something like that, or to the, you know, other lectures at Princeton or Yale or Harvard. Um, it's probably not going to happen. So I think that'd be interesting to study a little bit because when we really, it, it, it was... Uh, Who's the French sociologist, you know, uh, Jacques, uh, uh, oh, what's his last name? Elul. Elul, yeah. He, uh, he's the one who kind of opened my eyes to this a bit that said, you know, let's just look at Jesus' relationship with the state here and see what it's like. And, and you know, I want to go a little bit further and say, well, is it just with this particular government? As if we change the rulers, uh, then Jesus would just, like, be okay with it. Like then, you know, he, he would be on board and the early church would just be like, oh, yeah, let's let's all go run for office. I don't think that's the case. And but that's the assumption, you know, under a lot of uh, Christian thinkers today. And, uh, you know, is that, well, yeah, if Jesus was alive, he'd be a Republican, a Democrat, and he'd be telling, you know, you'd have to run for office. Uh, I was uh, told about a Facebook comment by a friend of mine who who posted a link by a thing by John Piper and, uh, John Piper is, you know, a Baptist, uh, uh, a pastor in, in Minneapolis and famous for, you know, wrote some books in evangelicalism. 
And he had apparently, and I didn't, I didn't listen or read the primary source myself, but I, from what I understand, it's, I get the general gist of it and I, I trust it, I guess, is that he had the audacity to say, um, that it was okay for Christians to, uh, not vote for a president. And, uh, Apparently, you know, some friends of mine were like, this is, this is radical. But if we, if we actually turn to the early church, we turn to the Greco-Roman world, to early Judaism, and we understand Christianity as it was then, what we're actually going to be asking ourselves is, is it okay to vote? Not, is it okay to not vote? Is it okay to be, to do anything related with the government, because the government is the tool of force, and force is fundamentally opposed to the kingdom of God. That's just not the way it works. So, uh, I mean, that's a, you know, just one of those things where, you know, things have been turned upside down, you know, and how Christianity today is uh, known for legitimizing wars, you know, in the in the Middle East or whatever, instead of preventing wars. Um, you know, to, I, I live in a very pro-military community. Ellsworth Air Force Base is here. There's soldiers everywhere you go. You go into Qdoba, you go to the to the mall, whatever. There's there's people in uniform, and there's a lot of military worship around here. And you know, if you just raise any question about like, you know, maybe like it's possible that killing people is wrong. Like like maybe, you know, violence could be wrong like like mass violence like like, like you know you're, you're you're looked at as uh with with deep suspicion and in the context of historic christianity it's just sort of like well we're we're missing something here it's, it's something's been reversed but uh, as far as your question and sorry about that little rant but you know as far as your question on libertarian ideas in in, in christian scholarship you know, libertarian Christian scholarship is generally a recent phenomenon. There isn't a lot of it. And, um, you know, that's why I'm going to focus more energy on, on certain projects uh, in that direction. And so, I mean, you know, what, what counts as scholarship? I mean, that's a question there. Uh, you know, you know, what was, was uh, you know, the, the first century writer's scholar as well, you know, not in a, in a modern sense, but... Um, you know, we could we could go through the history, uh, you know, up to uh, you know the Reformation and the, you know, the, the Anabaptist, you know, shift away from the state and how that, you know, was was viewed as extreme, in in everything like that. But uh, I don't know. We could we can go any direction with with that. But the the point is, I mean, there hasn't been a lot. I mean, there has been you know libertarian scholarship and plenty of Christian scholarship. But together, you're going to find little bits and pieces that critique the idea of coercion and violence in the state. But as far as a comprehensive, you know, self-aware, conscious, uh, you know, systematic presentation of, you know, the vision of the early church, for heaven's sakes, and the vision of a of a society without violence, um, there's not there's, there's there's not much of that. At least that's very explicit. Yeah, and you know we've we've talked about that a little bit in some of our previous episodes already. How the early Christians, for example, how they wouldn't have had a developed understanding of economic thought, but the the basic ideas that they represented, I, I think, identify perfectly with the 
with the non-aggression principle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the other things that I was thinking about as you were describing sort of the the history of interpretation and all these different schools of thought with with which scholars interpret the texts. And for those who aren't familiar with the hermeneutic and exegetical debates, there's all these different kind of forms of criticism that scholars go back and apply to the text. So you can read the text as a literary critic or as a feminist critic or a postmodern critic or a redaction critic. And there's just, it's it's almost dizzying how many different ways uh, people can approach the text. But I remember reading something from N.T. Wright where he said, you know, sometimes somebody who isn't caught up in all those minutiae, who's just coming to the text as a believer and reading the flow of the narrative often mm-hmm. can walk away with a better interpretation than these people who, who spill tens of thousands of pages of ink trying to argue for their little yeah. niche. And I think the... The reason for that is because, I mean, well, we, we do, as Christians, we do believe there's divine power is mediated through through the scripture, right? God speaks mm-hmm. to us, he's moving, he's doing something mm-hmm. through the scripture, and we can mm-hmm. we can vary on maybe how that happens, uh, but the the general idea that this is this is breathed out by God. It's spoken through God's prophets, God's apostles. There's there's mm-hmm. power in the text because it points to Christ, who is the Word. Um, as a result of that, there's there's something there that that just allows us to be to be moved by the narrative of the text. And when you come to it without this kind of now, now, granted, we all come to the text with certain rose-colored glasses. That's not in debate. We all come with certain presuppositions. Nevertheless. Uh, when you kind of start to peel away this uh, 21st century Western American uh, God and country Jesus idea that that so many of us have, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the the whole text of the Bible is overwhelmingly anti-imperial, anti-state. It, it's it's all the state is almost always pictured in a bad light, uh, mm-hmm. and to even the extent where, uh, I mean, we, we see God using evil empires in the Old Testament uh, to punish other uh, other individuals. So God sends mm-hmm. the Babylonians, God sends the Assyrians, and he he calls he calls them the club of my wrath and my sanctified ones. So here mm-hmm. we have God using the the these these evil pagan states uh, for his purposes and when so when you fast forward to the like what's going on in in the early church i mean we have to look at it and i mean and in the new testament text as well i think we have to look at it in that kind of context you know this is israel's god yahweh is the god who who uses evil against evil he who moves the he's sovereign over the kings of the earth uh, but that doesn't mean that he endorses what they do. It just means he's a sovereign God and evil cannot thwart his hand. Uh, and this whole idea, um, what, like you were talking about how you're in a very pro-military area, and actually a, a friend was sharing with me recently, uh, he had a, a fellow who's active duty military in his church, who's no longer in the church, but he said when he first met him, 
he he was asking him about the Middle East and what he does in in the Middle East because he's in a combat type position, and he says, "Aren't you concerned about how your actions uh, could potentially be?" Or, or most likely are, in fact, not just potentially, but are, in some sense, uh, killing innocent people. And this guy, who's evangelical Christian, uh, responded, they're all bad over there, uh, which is just in, <laughs> insane. I mean, yeah, that's baffling. In, including all the American church planters, I guess. <laughs> yeah, all those, all those terrible missionaries over there trying to spread the gospel. Um, and, and I mean, I just, I, I think yeah. there, there's such a disconnect where we, we don't even think about the fact that most of the world's Christians right now live outside of the English-speaking world. Absolutely. They're in the global south, they're in the Far East, and they're in the Arab world. Most of them are not anymore in in Europe and North America. The The face of the church is changing. That's right. And I think the Western church uh, is is kind of missing the boat here on that. Yeah. Well, you bring up, you bring up a lot there and, uh, that's, that's always a, it seems a profound reflection to just say that, that, yeah, the, the, the Western Christendom, the, you know, most people in Europe and, you know, most of the Christians in the world are in Europe or uh, United States and Canada or whatever. Yeah, it's not true. You know, we can, we can tell that to ourselves, but, uh, you know, I'm just finishing teaching world religions for the first time, and I read a statistic that was incredible. Uh, it was something like 7,500 people every single day uh, in the world, and especially in, in Europe and America, stop practicing Christianity. They stop calling themselves Christian. They stop going to church. Now, th those numbers are offset by an increase in, in well over 10,000 a day conversions in uh, the Southeast and, uh, and, and, and those, those areas. And so, I mean, some, some people are aware of that, some aren't, but it does, it, it should at least affect the way, uh, that we talk, the rhetoric that we have, uh, because, uh, it, it really doesn't do any good to, you know, sort of, you know, re repeat the same things over and over. And, I try to, you know, I try to have conversations about it with with people and say, you know, these are the reasons why Christianity is in decline, and it's not because of other people. It's not because of these uh, nefarious uh, bad guys, these ambiguous secularists and the atheists and the you know the gays and uh, pornographers are running over the hills with pitchforks coming to get us, sort of mentality or whatever it is. Um, it's because you know, the models of the church hasn't kept up. And because, um, you know, an Americanized version of Christianity isn't sustainable. It's, it's really that simple and, it, and it's going to show that, but, but let's get back, uh, to what you said earlier. Um, what, what did you say before, uh, talking about the, uh, the military, well, the, about the military situation. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there for just a moment because I was just doing some writing and I reread, just yesterday, uh, early in Luke's gospel, the story of the centurion and the healing of his servant. And uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, it's just, it just really gets me every time. And the reason, you know, we have to ask, well, why was this included in Matthew and Luke? You know, why is it significant that a centurion 
in the Roman army, number one, paid respect to Jesus, called him sir, felt ashamed uh, to even have anything to do with Jesus. And, um, and then Jesus says, this guy's got more faith than, than Israel. I mean, we have to scratch our heads when we're reading this, but we, we understand how significant it was if we understand that the nature of violence and the culture of violence that was taking place there and in the Greco-Roman world. I mean, the Roman soldiers were notorious for, for being brutal, and the centurion was even more notorious for being brutal. They were the trainers. They were the the real, uh, you know, hardcore, um, you know, I don't know if you'd say the equivalent of the Navy SEALs or Marines or something, but certainly something close to that. So, I mean, a subset of a subset of a subset, you know, of violence in this culture, uh, the, the very incarnation of like everything that Jesus is trying to point us away from, uh, you know, needs a favor from Jesus. And, and this is how the story goes down. And, you know, on the one hand, it's like, well, how could this person be ashamed? You know, he's a soldier, you know, God and country being proud. What, what, where's his spine or whatever, his pride of, 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 of country. And, and what you have instead is he's, he's just immediately shameful and very, um, uh, you know, just soft-spoken and, and just feels this weight. You can tell by reading the, the narrative. Well, it's because he's a centurion, because he kills people for a living. And that's a serious problem. And had he not repented and showed repentance and faith, uh, Jesus probably would have said something like, dude, you know, this is not right. Uh, you can't live like this. And just as uh, Richard B. Hayes says in his excellent book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, is that Christian soldiers, Christian soldiers were an anomaly. I mean, it just didn't make sense. It was like an oxymoron, Christian soldier. And so, yeah, we, we zoom forward 2,000 years to today, and it's like, you know, people even say, well, if you are a, a real Christian, you'll, you'll consider the military. Like, like this is like, you know, part of your obligation, you know, uh, and it gets mixed up with all this, you know, propaganda about uh, how serving, you know, your country is like serving God and, and, and other such nonsense. But so, yeah, I mean, that, that's uh, the, the militarism is, uh, is, is, you know, is a, is a tough one to, to sort of expose because of the culture in which we live. It's it's just so glorified, um, but uh, gosh, there was something else he said earlier before that, but I I can't remember, uh, and I'm not sure what it was. But I guess we'll just go from here. We we've kind of jumped around actually here um, sure. to some interesting things uh, that that I think are very worth worth exploring. But you know, uh, one one of the overriding themes I, I think that we can observe is that. These these things we we lament this sort of state idolatry the 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 modern day militarism which is I, I think functionally equivalent to like worshiping Mars or Baal uh, if you want to take it back to the ancient world it's the same kind of thing and except in modern America uh, but despite all this the 
like we just talked about, the, the, the demographics and the landscape of the church are are changing. And I'm by no means an expert on the, the two-thirds world and, and what's going on in the church out there. I mean, I know some, but if I, just using my limited knowledge, had to make a uh, prognostication, I'd say that we're going to see some very positive developments in, in the coming decades as our, our brethren from outside the Western world, who, who are already the the numerical majority in the church, really start to take on the the leading roles in shaping this next mm-hmm. generation of Christianity. And I think that's going to really start to strangle out uh, this idolatrous, militaristic, nationalistic form of Christianity that has uh, been in power for so long. And that's just going to be a tremendous blessing for the church. Um, but along those lines, um, at like like you mentioned earlier, the the state of of libertarian Christian scholarship is relatively new, and I, I think uh, it, one notable thing to say on this is that throughout the bulk of church history, the the vast majority of Christian scholarship period has has come out of the West, and you know the future may not mm-hmm. be that way, but that's the way it's been thus far. Uh, so, like moving forward through. You know, we, we had kind of gone through the early church. You talked about the Anabaptists, who we don't really know a lot about from their own writings. Most of what we have about them was written by people who hated and persecuted them. Uh, we do have some from Minnow Simmons and, and others, but uh, most of the Anabaptist contempor- uh, contemporary writings were, were written by their critics against them. Um, and then we move on to the Puritans, right? And so the, the European Puritans and the American Puritans were actually very different. Uh, the American Puritans were much more hardline theocratic. We were kind of taught that they mm-hmm. they left Europe uh, to pursue religious freedom. Well, really they left because they thought that the European Puritans weren't strict enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they wanted to come start a much stricter theocratic uh, government in in the new world, and we're actually going to talk about theonomy and and Christianity in a future episode of the podcast. Um, so maybe you want to pick up there, like going forward into the 18th century, the American Revolution, and onward in, into the 20th century, where we really start to see a, a lot more works of theology kind of put down on on paper. Yeah, well, that and of course, as soon as you framed it up for a question, I remembered what I wanted to say before. So I, I think I'll go ahead and do that uh, just before I forget it. But you were talking about a little bit about the history of interpretation and um, <clears throat> how that has you know, that that explains how Christians at different periods have seen government, politics, economics, and other issues. And that's really, really important. And you can you can. You know, that's kind of the root of so many things. But behind that, something that has really become, uh, I, I won't say an obsession, but but a deep interest of mine in the last five years, is doctrine of Scripture and bibliology. Is we really can't talk about, you know, um, <clears throat> you know how, the, how the world should be or what the problems of the world are without doing theology. And we can't do that without hermeneutics. And we can't do that without knowing what it is we're reading. And what I've just just sort of found in in my work teaching and reading and writing in, in, in the past few years is, uh, you know, people have different understandings of what the, about what the Bible is. You know, we can pretend like we're all on the same page, and to some extent we are, but largely, uh, you know, different metaphors, different different models 
totally shape the the trajectory of of what type of ethic we end up uh, getting to. And uh, I just taught on this this morning in Intro to the Bible about how um, you know you know for me one of the most useful metaphors is is, is the Bible as a map. And there's a lot of different th- there's different types of maps. And uh, uh, Kevin Van Hooser in his book uh, Drama of Doctrine is is a really great book on theological method. Uh, you know, talks about the Bible as an atlas, as a collection of different maps. You know how Jesus is the North Star, and and um, uh, you know we're there's different kinds and and for different purposes and and different degrees and types of truth and different things like that. But uh, you know, through, throughout, you know, the I, I don't want to say since the Reformation, but uh, since sola scriptura, uh, 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 you know, a just and proper correction to the to the Roman Catholic uh, bibliology, there's been you know a, a sort of uh, idea that the Bible's like a manual. You know, you, you hear that sometimes in, in Sunday school churches. You know, the Bible's like a, like a manual. It's like, well, no, it's not like a manual. Uh, you know, you don't point to it and just do what it says. I mean, in that case, we'd be greeting another with a holy kiss, you know, and uh, all, all, all these different things that are uh, obviously uh, uh, contextual, which all of Scripture is. And that's, uh, that's a whole other topic there, but that's really shaped my understanding, too, is, is how all of Scripture is in a context. It's not just like, and this is, gonna, this is preempting your, your theonomy discussion, it's it's not just like well there are some texts of scripture that apply today, and some that don't. Uh, N.T. Wright and Richard B. Hayes has tried really really hard at at saying that this is this is not a a proper way of understanding uh, how the Bible works or how interpretation works. This dichotomy is it's a false dichotomy. All of scripture applies. All of scripture is contextual. Uh, it's just there's some work that has to be done in understanding. Uh, what we do with the story and the content of the scriptures. And so there are particular rules to follow in that. And so what you sort of have in uh, you know, the statism in, in, in America, in a lot of the theonomic experiments, uh, whether it's in, in the Puritan context or just in theory, uh, in, in uh, you know, the, the 20th century and, and beyond, Really, a lot of it has to do with what the Bible is, and because of that, what we what we do with it, and and that goes down to I mean that that you know kind of determines the the war thing in Israel and the Old Testament, and well, you know, it's I just had a discussion with a with a friend uh, on the subject, and I I was just suggesting that like violence was was bad, you know, like we shouldn't go to war, uh, like it's not a good thing, and and you know in in a lot of Christian conservative mindsets, it's like the first reaction is, well, you know, immediately to justify it. Like say, like, well, here's, here's the exceptions. Uh, you know, why that instinct is there, I don't know. It's, it's not a Christian instinct. I mean, you don't have, you know, many people in the early Christianity, their first instinct is to look for ways to justify violence. <clears throat> Usually the opposite, but anyway, uh, you know, it's having that discussion and, and the example is given, well, you know, God commanded war in the Old Testament. You know, and so therefore, you know, it's 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 like open, like that's that's the extent of the argument. Um, you know, no, no real method, no real exegesis, no real understanding of 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 what the Bible is, you know, or how it works, 
And so that's just something I, 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 I really pound um, in, in a lot of discussions because it's the root of so many uh, disagreements. And when you're in a culture like American evangelicalism, it's it's a really simplistic biblicism and proof texting uh, that leads to all kinds of things from Zionism to this war, that war, end times, and a zillion other things that you know we don't have time to talk about. So, but anyway, uh, I th- I think that's that's behind a lot of the the theories, as you said, the the thoughts. Um, uh, stream. I forget what the what you said. Streams of thought, or or or. Uh, theories uh, of, you know, state church in those relationships and how to interpret the Bible. So I think that's a really important place to go. And there's been some really good recent work on that. Uh, but most, a lot of people just don't know, uh, that those books exist. So, uh, anyway, that's, that's what I wanted to mention there. Uh, as far as your, your other, your other question that you you set up about, um, getting into the 20th century and, and developments and things like that. Well, it's, it's it's characteristic. You read any book on theology, heart basically. I mean, any any serious academic book on theology, and there's going to be some talk about modernism. And I remember in as an undergraduate uh, at Dort College studying uh, theology that I just I just didn't get it. Like like the, a lot of the writers and a lot of people would talk about oh modernism, modernism, but nobody would sit down and explain it for you. Uh, it's just like they sort of assumed you knew how traumatic this was, whatever this thing was, modernism, like the advent of the Enlightenment. And it's like, well, you know, there were some summaries given about, uh, you know, rationalism and Descartes and the Industrial Revolution and uh, foundationalist epistemology. But but uh, really from the 18, you know, early 1800s to early 1900s, just tracing the events there, you know, can really help a person understand the way in which the world was changing. And uh, if you noticed on my page on the libertarianchristians.com uh, website, one of my my favorite authors is Rose Wilder. And Rose Wilder's book, she was the, the, uh, the daughter, I believe, of Laura Ingalls Wilder. She wrote a book called um, The Discovery of Freedom, a really great book. The, the beginning is sort of weird, but then it, it gets really, really interesting. And she was a world-traveling journalist, and she described the the changes in modernity better than at least at least in positive economic terms better than anybody else I'd ever ever read before. <clears throat> and and what that what that those changes involved are, are, are probably too much we can too much that, that we could describe here now. But a lot of it had to do with centralized authority, a lot of optimism about human reason. You have Darwinism, Freudianism, the Industrial Revolution, public education, and a zillion other things going on all at one time. And um, it was the failures of a lot of the promises of modernity, the wars, the First World War, the Second World War, the Great Depression. These were all experiments in um, you know, modern, centralized authoritarian systems. I mean, the, the, the mass starvation in Russia in the late 1930s uh, from controlling the food supply, uh, you know, event after event after event, a lot of these things, and it already started going down even before that, created reason for doubt and skepticism. And we're reaping the fruits of that in post-modernity, uh, where we have, you know, questions of, of, uh, 
of, of, of authority and truth itself and a whole number of other things and, and a, a kind of skepticism that's really never existed before. And so what you, what you have is the first, um, maybe not first, but like you have the foil for a critique of statism. You know, libertarianism, as we understand it today, is both a modern and a postmodern movement. It has its origins a foot a foot in in both of these worlds together. And you see that in von Mises. If you read human action, you can see uh, so vividly how he has he has a foot in one world and a foot in in another world. he's He's very modern on the one hand. He's very suspicious of religion. Uh, he says things that are very optimistic. Um, and on the other hand, he's very critical and saying we're we're not getting to the to the real issues here. We're we can't make economics the science of math like like you all say it can. And so, um, in that period, you have a lot of the writings that are starting to deal with government, violence, and and the state. Now, it took a while before a lot of that collapsed. It, I mean, it really collapsed in in Russia. Uh, with you know the Berlin Wall falling was emblematic of that, and um, you know there was you know the, the some of the sort of socialistic economic experiments like the New Deal uh, you know in from 1929 to the 1930s, uh, but then a lot of it had to be abandoned. It just wasn't feasible, and you know the freedom and the the pr- product. Activity of, of, of capitalism started to really take off and show itself to be to be worth something. And I mean, it did before that, too, with the Industrial Revolution. But so you have theologians throughout this this period. You have uh, a lot of people early on. You have a couple of reform theologians, the Dutch reformed, like Herman Bovik and Abraham Kuyper. Very, very well read. Very, very well written. They're very smart theologians. Herman Bovik was probably the greatest reform theologian since Calvin. And, and maybe ever, ever till today, as far as I'm concerned, I've taught through his dogmatics to translate it from Dutch, and it's it's a brilliant work, very balanced. And he he was taught uh, at a secular university, uh, got a degree, I think a graduate school uh, degree, if I remember right. And so he really understood a lot of the things that were going down with these these cataclysmic changes, and had to deal with them theologically. And like Kuiper, both of them began to, in contrary to the Puritans, in contrary to the Westminster divines, in contrary to that sort of, uh, that, that, that version of Protestant thought, Bavink and Kuyper, they first of all um, recognized the coercive nature of the state and that this is an issue. Uh, and if you read uh, their, their writings, they I mean, they, they'll, they'll acknowledge, I mean, and just to see uh, a theologian acknowledge that the government has a monopoly on force, I mean, that's a big step. I mean, there are a lot of theologians who won't do that. They don't even see that. And so Kuiper and Bavik were really ahead of their game on that. And, and Kuiper was, he was the prime minister of the Netherlands, not to mention the founding chair of systematic theology at his own university that he also founded. And he wrote, uh, you know, two systematic theologies and was also a, was the anti-revolutionary party advocate and and uh, ran a newspaper and, and and did all kinds of things. So he had his 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 uh, focus in the political realm and uh, in theology the whole time. And he, he wrote a little a good book called The Problem of Poverty, 
and it was recently translated uh, in a new translation in the last, uh, I think, decade or so. Um, it can be bought on Amazon. And he, he, there's a lot of things he says in there. I don't agree with all of them. It's not that he was libertarian, but he understood that, you know, we don't, we shouldn't depend on the government to do, uh, you know, to, to get the things to have the results that the church should be entrusted with. Um, you know, it, the, the caring for the poor, uh, taking care of, uh, you know, minorities and downtrodden, uh, et cetera. The church should be on the front lines of this. And, you know, he even said something like every dollar that, uh, every dollar for food stamps is like a, like a scar on, on your savior or something like that on the body of your savior. I, I can't remember what the metaphor was, but it was really powerful. Like he was, he's really, uh, uh, trying to stress that, you know, the, the, the state, you know, shouldn't be doing really these, these type of things. It's, it's, it's purpose. And, you know, his view is, is justice primarily. Um, and you know, it, it's a more narrow term than justice than we have today. Today, justice, you know, means something very broad, like, you know, we all got to have a car and a, a house. This is justice, you know, someone's deprived of healthcare, which never existed for millions of years. You know, this is justice or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> so I don't know. Those are two figures that, that are there. And then, you know, at the same time, you have the social gospel movement where you have something very different that puts more emphasis that the government should be doing things. Walter Ruschenbusch is one figure there who's, who's responsible. He was, a, he was a Baptist preacher. Then you have the Niebuhr brothers, which I haven't read in a long time. Um, but, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's work is, is really great on depravity. I remember that much from reading him uh, back in college. And, um, Jürgen Moltmann is is it was a German theologian. He's still alive, and I I almost died when I heard that he was at this conference I was at, and I missed him by a day to have him sign a book that I had read and and published a review on. Uh, one of the greatest living theologians, uh, considered a, a panentheist, and uh, some consider him a liberation theologian. Uh, it was it was no libertarian, uh, that's for sure. But he had a lot of good critiques about violence, and especially with his doctrine of creation and understanding, uh, you know, the relationship between God and creation, I think, uh, gave a much needed, uh, um, you know, a, a, a dose of, 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 uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to say anti-modernity, but, uh, it definitely balanced things out a bit. Um, and then, you know, as, uh, you know, we have here in the notes, like the formation of the religious right, which, you know, people who are a little bit older than me can can talk about with more authority because they they sort of saw its development in uh, Jerry Falwell and Liberty University and everything along with it, the moral majority and Christian Zionism and all of that. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a real mess, but you have a very powerful base that was created um, side by side with Billy Graham crusades and uh, v various other events that are are just they defined Christianity for an entire generation. Um, also defined what it means to be uh, a, a Christian uh, and have a Christian politic for an entire generation. And so there you have, you know, like the, the one issue voters, whether it's abortion or other things like that, start to emerge. And, you know, I, <laughs> this, is, yeah, this is all a really crass... I'm trying to think of what this would be like if I was 
teaching it in the classroom <laughs> if anybody could understand. But uh, really crass history and of uh, of some of these these thinkers. But kind of brings us up to today. Uh, and there's a whole a whole another thing going on there. And I, I'm going to pause because I've been talking for a long time. But we can talk more about contemporary authors. And I'm going to grab a drink here. So. With the religious right, I mean, I think a, a good portion of that came as 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 a reaction to the the, the counterculture and the the hippie movement of the 1960s. And before that, you had the the, the beatniks, like going back into the the 1950s. So really, there's there's kind of these countercultural movements uh, that that sprung up in the aftermath of the World Wars. Like you had mentioned earlier, people were. The whole world was disillusioned after, especially after World War One. Um, mm-hmm. That's why you kind of had this rise in sort of existentialist thought and these these authors who were uh, adopting nihilism and other things of that sort, just because they were so they'd seen all the death and the tragedy, especially those who had served over in in uh, in Europe during well, like like the Moody First World War. and uh, and the rise of dispensationalism. You know this really depressing eschatology that has become a controlling paradigm for American evangelical thought. Uh, so I just, I have to mention that there because it's, it's really, you know, so important that, uh, that, you know, that, that theological paradigm came from that disillusionment as, as well. Yeah. And we really see that, I think in the, well, in, in the whole rise of the religious right. And so I, I, I don't remember when, when it was published. I, I want to say it was sometime in the 70s, right? But Hal Lindsey wrote The Late Great Planet Earth, um, very, very famous and influential book, basically saying, you know, the end is near. Uh, and so from that kind of came the whole left behind, uh, imminent end of the world kind of thinking that has, has been so prominent in at least Western Christian thought uh, for for a very long time, and then on on another point, you had brought up the the Nibor brothers, and uh, there, there's two of them, right? So there's H. Richard and uh, and Reinhold, and Reinhold probably one of the most influential theologians of the past hundred years, alongside maybe Karl Barth would be the the only other one I can think of who had quite that scope, at least amongst Protestants, um, and he. His approach to this whole issue of of society and and politics and world, he's looking at the text, and he basically says, "Yeah, you know, the New Testament is pointing towards this this lofty goal of what mm. things ideally would be like. Nevertheless, that's not the world we live in, and so mm-hmm. we can't actually do it that way. Right. And this is also uh, most people, when we, we to go back briefly to the whole issue of of war and things of that sort, Augustine is famous for formulating the just war theory. Um, most people who who throw that out have no idea what they're talking about. They don't understand <laughs> just war. Uh, any war is a just war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, or, <laughs> but it just just it, well, yeah. if it if it if it comes out of Washington D.C., it's a just war. That's exactly. just war theory for, exactly yeah. for most American yeah. Christians. But yeah. Augustine's theory of the just war and and those other thinkers who came after him was very strenuous and had a lot of criteria. And virtually no war the United States has ever engaged in would even pass Augustine's muster for a just war. Yeah, That's just to say that. But to go beyond that, Augustine believed 
that much like uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, that the vision of the New Testament was a nonviolent, non-coercive, kind of anti-imperial vision. And he argued that that was fitting for the time. Mm. But by his point in history, in the fourth century or so, uh, things had changed. You know, he was writing post-Constantine, and so it no longer really applied in quite the same way. And that was uh, essentially what Reinhold Niebuhr was arguing in his theory of Christian yeah. realism. And I think a lot of, a, a good majority of Western Christian thought uh, has has adopted that line of thinking without even realizing it, that what they're really saying is, yeah, this stuff in the New Testament sounds good, and it would be great if we could do it, but we really can't, so we have to do it our way instead. Uh, and yeah. That, and, 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 well, I was just going to say, and and, uh, and I, I have read uh, his interpretation of Christian ethics. Uh, I read that back in uh, September, and I, now, I, now I'm I'm getting. I'm. I'm remembering uh, that that particular part by by Reinhold. Um, what 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 also is, it, it, it's not just an idea. I mean, you have you have that idealism in in, in Niebuhr, but what what what's also going on is, you have you have early Christianity, then it becomes wedded to the state, and then it starts to separate a little bit more again, with the Reformation, where Luther says. Uh, you know, well, you have it even in the confessions, in the Reformed confessions. There are two great gifts from God, uh, the <clears throat> the king and the priest. And you see this dichotomy throughout Protestant confessions and in Protestant literature. And the idea is there's two realms, right? You have the state and you have the tool of force and coercion. And uh, the idea is that, you know, God made that and that's a legitimate sphere and it does its own thing. And then parallel to that, you have the church and it does its own thing and it does the spiritual stuff. That's not the vision of the New Testament. That's not the vision of the church. You know, Jesus and the early church, they did not intend at all that the gospel of Jesus Christ is restricted to a particular day of the week, to a particular realm of the universe, to a particular uh, strand of thought it was to be the beginning, the inauguration of taking over the world, which is the, that, that's why he had the language of king and kingdom and preaching the kingdom uh, to all creatures. And so the model of the church is, at least some theologians would say, and you know they have a point, that it's actually uh, a model of life for all realms of society. Now that's very, very different than a post-Reformation perspective where you have that division of labor, which is so characteristic of, of, of modernism and the compartmentalization of the university and all these other things. Um, so I, I think that's, that's the other thing, too, is, is people are still thinking in terms of those divisions. And this is something Kuiper was trying to take behind the woodshed and shoot with a 12-gauge shotgun, is the idea that, well, you know, most of this world or the chunk of this world is God's. And, uh, but everything else, you know, it's not, you know, there's a secular and there's a sacred and Kuiper, you know, in his famous quote says, there's not one square inch of this world, uh, you know, that God can't say, you know, th this is mine. And so, um, but, but that pulsates through our day-to-day -day life here in, in, in modern and postmodern Western world. 
it's like, well, I guess it's Sunday. I'll do something Christian. You know, this whole idea is just like foreign uh, to, to, to so many centuries and to so many groups. Uh, you, you sort of know what I'm, what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, like you had mentioned, Kuiper, uh, definitely not libertarian, but the, 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 the idea of from which he was looking at the world, that you can't compartmentalize out different aspects of, of life and society and go, well, this is the state over here and this is the church over here, which is really, that goes back to Luther, right? And two kingdom theology, as it's often called. But so Kuiper is totally right to say that, you know, the, the vision of the New Testament is all encompassing. The, and, and the mission of the church is to be God's agent of, of worship and evangelism and love and ministry in the world, moving towards the absolute uh, dominion of Christ over all creation. And so we, we have, in, in scholarship and in, in formal theology, uh, in the last 50 years or so, there have been some authors that have started to move the conversation uh, back in that direction. You had mentioned uh, Richard Hayes earlier, and his book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, is one of my favorite books as well. Uh, we mentioned N.T. Wright here a lot, uh, who may be the greatest uh, biblical scholar alive today, arguably. Uh, but there have been others as as well. So where do you kind of see things at today? I mean, the, yeah. and, and, and also, I mean, there's, there's a lot of scholars who we cite uh, here at LCI quite frequently, like, like Greg Boyd, Scott McKnight, mm -hmm. who uh, w would not identify as mm -hmm. libertarian and probably don't even like the label, but they've had a, a big influence on, on the way we approach things. And when you really look at, at, at their their vision of theology, it is uh, it, it, it essentially libertarian in the truest small l sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so w w where are we today? Well, that's that's a great question. Um, y yes, there there are there are plenty of of uh, you know so called libertarian impulses in today's contemporary scholarship. They're not going to be found very easily, but you find these themes and ideas and arguments scattered throughout what is often, as as you know, you sort of observed in uh, professors of New Testament. You know, there's a lot of different fields of theology. There's a lot of different fields of biblical study, and there's a lot of different fields. I don't think it is an irony that N.T. Wright, Scott McKnight, Richard B. Hayes. So we got people at Oxford, Cambridge, Duke. Uh, and, and other seminaries and, and prominent institutions. These are world-class scholars. I don't think it's a coincidence that they're professors of New Testament that are the ones so easily making assertions that so easily resemble libertarianism. Uh, I think that's precisely because of the character, the characteristics of the early church. And so, uh, yeah, those, those are a few. And, um, I mean, anti Wright has been influential in... in uh, in my reading and in my work on his is more academic than his popular works. Uh, you know, his, his, uh, ongoing series of, uh, um, Christian origins and the question of God series. It is just amazing. It's going to be one of the, certainly one of the most, um, uh, you know, powerful cases for the, the reasonableness of Christianity. I mean, he never called it a work of apologetics. You know, that's not really, being a, an apologist and writing apologetics is not really uh, credible in, in academia because you've 
you know, sometimes for good reasons, because, you know, you're sort of saying you already know the answers and you're in a position to defend it and so forth. But, you know, it, it is a, it is a group of work that's, that's going to really serve the church for, for many decades to come. And, but there's others like, you know, Daniel Miglior, when I teach systematic theology, I, I teach three courses. So systematics one, two, and three. And so it's God creation, Christ salvation, and then church, Holy Spirit, and eschaton. <clears throat> and I, I, I just tortured myself for two years on what text to use. I didn't want to just indoctrinate my students and buy what's the, whatever's the latest and greatest. I didn't just want to convince them of everything I believe is true. I wanted them to think critically, and I wanted to choose textbooks that were really, really high quality. And so I, I, I chose uh, Thomas Oden's Classic Christianity. Uh, he's a patristic scholar, a Methodist, and he, I think he just passed away in the last year. Uh, wonderful uh, author. And, and, and his book is basically an, an ecumenical systematic theology. There's almost nothing quite like it. Then I chose Herman Bovink's uh, Reform Dogmatics as one volume. Uh, it's not very well known, but its quality and its balance is just uh, un unparalleled for uh, a number of reasons. And its sens sensitivities to modernity and other things are really valuable. And then I chose Daniel Miglior's Faith Seeking Understanding, which is um, a third edition, and he's a, a professor of theology at Princeton. And uh, much more contemporary and progressive, uh, very sensitive to feminist and liberation theology, uh, and um, a, a lot of the contemporary issues in 20th century theology. But very, very well written, and um, the, the, so I used all three, and we did one each section for each semester. And anyway, Miglior, there's there's stuff in there that you know I. I you just got to say, well, of course, this guy's a libertarian. I mean, look at his critiques of the state, his critiques of violence, his 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 uh, uh, his, his historical consciousness on on twentieth century experiments with statism, modernity, and 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 centralized power, uh, his his understanding of the gospel and the the impulses of of, of inverting authority structures in the New Testament. Uh, of course, he, 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 you know, he'd be terrified if, if, if we called him a libertarian. He, he, would, he would denounce that because it's, it's, you know, it's a dirty word. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good one volume, and you find uh, things in that. Stanley Hauerwas is an obvious one because, well, we got to go earlier to his, his professor, John Yoder, who taught at uh, uh, theology at Notre Dame, wrote an excellent book called The Politics of Jesus. Really good, and he's a Mennonite. And so he's, he's, he, you know, you draw a line from the Anabaptists, the dotted line at least, uh, to him, and he is, uh, does an excellent job at, uh, at, at giving a case for Christian nonviolence, but is very sensitive to the New Testament world, uh, <clears throat> you know, which you don't always have with a theologian. And that's a whole different topic between the debate between biblical scholars and theologians. But, uh, Yoder's book had a, had a profound impact on my life. I read it later, kind of in my intellectual journey, but um, just opened my eyes to some of the sayings of Jesus, you know, that the render unto Caesar what's Caesar's, unto God what's God's. And he says, you know, most people have been reading this like this. This is uh, validating the type of dichotomy that I just mentioned before. You have the world of uh, church and Christianity and God. And then you have, uh, you know, everything else, the world of government and so-called secular affairs. And the idea is that, <clears throat> um, you know, people are saying, well, you know, this 
uh, you know, Jesus is Lord, this phrase and, and, and this text about render under Caesar, um, you know, most people would say that this is, this is meant to say that they're not in conflict. He says, no, that's the point. The whole point is to set them in contrast to each other. Like, like, duh, that's, that's what was so revolutionary. That, I mean, again, Jesus died for insurrection. How do you explain that? You can't explain that if everything Jesus did was apolitical. If everything he taught, everything he embodied was, was, was non-political, it had, didn't have political implications, why did he die? And why did he die for the reasons he died? These are the type of questions that uh, that N.T. Wright has really brought to the forefront, as well as Yoder and others. Well, anyway, uh, Yoder's uh, <clears throat> one of his students, Stanley Hauerwas at Duke Divinity School, has written a, a bunch on, on similar topics. He's very eccentric. Uh, he's very entertaining to read. He's, I've read his sermons, and uh, I've enjoyed them. Um, but putting it all together is is a is a problem. Like he's, he's not a systematic theologian <clears throat> emphasis on the systematic there. Uh, but is a tre tremendous theologian has written a lot critiquing, uh, both consumerist capitalism and statist, uh, violence and, uh, trust in the government at the same time. Uh, and I have, you know, issues with his understanding of what capitalism is. Uh, and, and that in consumerism as well, people today conflate the two as if they're the same. And of course, they're not. Uh, consumerism is not capitalism and vice versa, though one is a precondition of the other. Those are those are some names where you're going to find some of these themes uh, that that raise legitimate and good questions. Uh, and then Scott McKnight, uh, as you read, he's a professor of New Testament at uh, North Northern Seminary or I can't remember in, in Illinois. It's somewhere in Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's written uh, some some academic, but a ton of popular works, and I've read a few, and they're they're very good. But then you have most of these names are unfamiliar to evangelicals because evangelicals, in a way, and I don't I don't mean this too condescendingly. I mean I do identify as an evangelical in a sense. It, it's quite qualified, but um, they you know, they kind of live in their own world. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and you see this. I mean, this is not an exaggeration. I mean, I went to ETS. And then uh, IBR, and I mean, I've done this for, for years, but I did this year I went to all of them. ETS, Evangelical Theological Society. So uh, very conservative, you'd probably say fundamentalist. And IBR, which is more broad, and I said hello to N.T. Wright and, uh, and, and some other folks who are there. And then went to SBL, which is the Secular Organization Society of Biblical Literature. And they're all, you know, it's hard to talk, hard to describe, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the cultural, um, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, sub, the subculture of, <laughs> of academics, you know, um, you know, you have those who are just out there to get a name and, and, and are really into themselves and others who are really humble scholars and great people. And then others who just don't know what they're talking about, but they have the right degrees. And, and so it's all kind of there, but, but evangelicals, they, uh, <clears throat> they kind of live in their own world in a way. And, um, they would be familiar with the names Wayne Grudem and John MacArthur, for example. And Wayne Grudem and John MacArthur, Grudem teaches theology in, in Phoenix, and uh, um, 
And MacArthur is a famous a Bible expositor on the radio and also started the master's college and seminary uh, in California. And uh, they had an exchange. I can't remember the years, but uh, they had an exchange about basically Christians' role in the government. And and Grudem was pulling, you know, the conserv- neoconservative line. You know, we need to get as many Christians in office as possible. This is their duty. Uh, you know, we have a responsibility to, you know, try and influence the government as much as possible, so we can, you know, force you know, this way, our right way of living on, on the rest of the world. And this is like positive change. MacArthur for being just as fundamentalist biblicist, um, and, and, uh, you know, a, a very, a strong tone of, of, um, of what's right and wrong and black and white. Interestingly said, you know, no, no, really, we, we don't need to do that. And, uh, we don't, uh, need to, put all this pressure on people to run for civic office. We, we shouldn't actually trust the government for the proclamation of the gospel and, and the kingdom of God really much at all. That, that, I guess that, that was one episode that I think some listeners might be familiar with, but, um, I, I haven't, I haven't followed that much since. And I, I don't, uh, you know, read them as much as possible. I listened to MacArthur when I was 16 and driving home from, uh, from youth group or whatever, and listening to his, his sermons and stuff. But um, otherwise, you, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Preston Sprinkle. I, I don't know Sprinkle. Um, I haven't read any of his stuff, but I guess you have. So maybe you could you could uh, talk about that briefly. Yeah, Sprinkle uh, is also a New Testament scholar, like you had mentioned earlier. A lot of these guys tend to be um, tend to be New Testament scholars, and I, I listen to his podcast pretty frequently. I've read several of his books. Uh, he's just a very refreshing kind of thinker. Um, and in more recent developments, he's he's doing a lot of work in the issue of uh, gender and how how Christians should basically deal with with the issue of homosexuality. Uh, and he is he he does adhere to the the traditional view that same sex um, actions are sin, but he would argue that the the way the church has addressed the issue has just been very uh, harsh and hateful and unchristlike towards uh, people who struggle with that particular temptation. So, and that's mm-hmm. not my area of expertise. I'm just uh, just by way of saying that's kind of what he's working on lately. But he's also done quite a bit in terms of. Uh, talking about Christianity and violence and war and things of that sort. And interestingly, he came out of uh, Master's College and Master's Seminary. And I've I've noticed kind of a a trend there. There's been um, a a lot of, not a lot, but a a vocal minority of people who kind of came out of of MacArthur's seminaries there uh, who are are going in this kind of very libertarian-esque direction. Hmm. Um, and you had mentioned Grudem earlier. You know, Grudem, I, along those lines, I remember, uh, I I, I want to say this was all the way back in 2008. He was a very early uh, endorser of Mitt Romney, which I just found very, very interesting even at, at the time. I, in 2008, I mean, that was, my goodness, almost 10 years ago. But 
uh, I, I had been a Christian for a couple of years around that time, but even I just kind of thought, what is what is Gruden doing here? Um, <laughs> well, well, then your instincts were right at the very beginning. Like, yeah, I, <laughs> I I should have just run with uh, run with the first instinct. Um, so yeah, it, it seems like Grudem, who I, I don't want to bash him. I mean, he's he's done a lot of good in some other areas, but on, on the issue of politics, it kind of just seems to be like you know whatever whatever he he feels like fits at the time is kind of what he rolls with, and it's not really unique to him. I mean, that's kind of just a broader problem in in Christian thought, like we were talking about earlier with uh, with Reinhold Niebuhr. It's kind of like, well, this is what we have, so we got to do it. Uh, we got to do it this way. We can't really follow this high and lofty vision laid out in in the New Testament, uh, which I mean, I I would totally dispute that line of thinking. And I think, thankfully, uh, I, I believe the demographics and the the sh- the shifts are changing more uh, towards towards a different way of looking at things that, that that is more restorationist. That is more looking forward to the church as an agent. Um, not through the state, not through coercion, but through love and ministry and, and the power of the gospel uh, to really change the world and uh, assert the the loving reign of Christ through through service uh, into into the world. As we uh, as we kind of move towards closing this out, for anyone listening who who maybe is a, a an aspiring theologian, biblical scholar, pastor, uh, what what would your recommendation be to them based on what you've observed in both the broader church and, and academia as a libertarian Christian? Um, what might they want to focus on? What should they avoid? And what are kind of the big gaps in libertarian Christian thought and scholarship where we need uh, where we need more research, where we need more scholars producing content. Well, that's a good question. Uh, I guess you know the rules of you know, the wisdom of research kind of apply to all areas. You know, avoid cults and uh, charismatic personalities. And um, if you find your blood pressure rising when certain topics are addressed, uh, that tells you that you're you know you're obviously really invested in them and. Um, it's just important to be self-aware of, of those, uh, you know, topics and conversations and, and things like that. I mean, we all know that we, we can't have certain conversations with family members and friends just because of these different things. And, um, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that has to do more with relational skills, I guess, but it's all related in, in academics too, you know? Um, but, uh, so, I mean, the books I mentioned are, are good, are good to read, uh, and, uh, it really depends on where a person is uh, to, to to look in, di- in different areas, uh, you know. For for how how do we do ethics with the Bible? Uh, Richard Hayes' book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, is a great book. Um, you know, for for the New Testament world, just understanding it a bit. There's a book called The World of the New Testament, published by Baker in the last couple of years. It's very very good, and. Uh, Let's see. Others I mentioned. Well, I mean, we'll probably put them on the the notes page. But um, yeah, it, it, academia is on a, on a pretty serious decline right now, and it's probably going to s- keep declining and then stay that way because of online education and a lot of other things, consolidations and finances and uh, global competition and a zillion other things. 
I, there are some students that I have would be great professors. I just have a hard time recommending that they go into it because I mean, I, I have so many colleagues who are in, are in trouble because there's just no jobs and they're closing and closing and closing. I'm, I'm extremely fortunate just to have a job right now and I'm planting seeds in all kinds of areas, you know, real estate, another master's degree in econ and in a number of different things. Cause I, I don't know what the future holds, but, uh, so it's, it's kind of uncertain, but, um, yeah, I mean, reading good books is, is always good, but finding what they are is, is taking me years. And so that's, that's just been a valuable part, but gaps in research, well, there's a lot. Uh, one that comes to mind in Christian libertarianism is, you know, what is freedom? Uh, you know, we define it, you know, generally in terms of lack of violence, lack of aggression and use of force. Um, that's okay, but we got to have a more sophisticated understanding of freedom. There are people who have that type of freedom, but they're slaves, right? Uh, they're slaves to themselves, to their jobs, to their uh, different ideologies and, and, and various gods and goddesses uh, that they worship here in, in America and, and elsewhere. And so a more, and, and this is something David Bentley Hart touches on in a really great book called Atheist Delusions, published by Yale University Press. Uh, and and uh, he kind of, you know, he kind of critiques the idea of freedom in, in the context of uh, classic liberalism. Um, and saying how it's really sort of delusional, and he's, he's uh, I think, largely right. There needs to be a more sophisticated understanding of what freedom is. Uh, other areas are, um, well, I mean, there's always the, uh, the practical things about what, what, what should we do? We can't just, you know, have podcasts and complain about stuff. What, what should Christians really do? Um, and what can they do to enact some kind of change? How should we understand the role of the church? What type of modifications should we make to our the way we understand how church is done, our, our constitution, and uh, should we be a registered nonprofit, and all these other these type of decisions? Um, I think those are some things that could be worked out too. Um, otherwise, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's something I'd have to think about, but there's definitely plenty of areas for research and uh, ethics in biblical studies and, and just hermeneutics is always an area that uh, there's plenty of written on, but getting it to the masses and uh, is, is the tricky part, you know, to where it really affects the day-to-day -day conversations and Facebook posts that we're, we're all insaturated in. So that's it for your question as best as I can in a short time. So... Yeah, and as far as impacting the the conversation over the long haul, that's uh, that's a problem I think in in broader academia where you have a lot of academics who just write and publish things, and it never really goes anywhere. It never really yeah. actually makes it out to the pe to the the, the, the mm -hmm. general public and influences society. But along those lines, we uh, we did say that we would have an announcement at this podcast, and so that is how we're gonna wrap up the show by announcing that the Libertarian Christian Institute is launching a new research conduit for Libertarian Christian scholarship. And Jamin, you are our general editor of what is going to be known as the Christian Libertarian Review. So yes. I'm very excited about this. I know you've wanted to see this happen for a long time. Yes. We have some amazing people 
on our peer review board. I can't believe some of them agreed to it, quite frankly. Uh, I'm so glad they did. I can't um, either. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what we can expect to see from CLR um, sure. going forward? Well, it, this is a you know a fully orbed academic peer review journal uh, for articles and book reviews, and uh, it's something myself and others have had envisioned for a long time. I've done a lot of publication projects uh, in in a lot of variety of areas, so this is just a, a really good fit for me. Um, we've got, I mean, Nick is on the team to help do all kinds of things. Uh, Ruth Ryder, I, I haven't got a chance to meet her or talk with her yet, but she has agreed. Uh, has two master's degrees, and she's going to be uh, uh, doing editorial work and some administrative work. And then we have peer reviewers, a, a big list of uh, looks like about 10, and they all have their PhDs, some with JDs. And I mean, these are, these are, I, I it blew my mind. I mean, when I, when I, when I, when I was sitting back thinking, you know, let, let's do a, a Christian libertarian journal. You know, I, we got to get peer reviewers. We just need five. If we can just get five, you know, we'd be able to get indexed in uh, major databases at universities and different things. And uh, we didn't just get five, but we got way more than five, twice that. And there are people I, most of them I haven't heard of, but I mean, some of them have taught at multiple Ivy League institutions. They've published in the most respectable academic venues, from Rutledge to, um, you know, Oxford and others. Uh, and they're economists, they're professors of history, they're historians, they're theologians, and uh, humanity scholars, and, and a number of others, lawyers. And uh, it just blew me away that within two and a half weeks, uh, we we had this team. And so it tells me, my goodness, there is a demand. There, there is, there, there is something going on here. People want this. And of course, I always knew that because it's like, well, I want to write on certain issues, like some of the stuff we've been talking about on this program. Where am I going to get that stuff published? Where is it going to be published? I, I, I'm a peer reviewer for two journals, uh, and now I'm, I'm this general editor, and I presented at these different academies. I've, I'm a member of six, seven academic societies. There's strict limitations. I know how this works. You know, I, I've you know, Ben, the person that says yay or nay to both articles and conference presentations. I, I know the politics involved and the restrictions and pleasing audiences and all of that stuff. So I, there, there's so many publications. Is there really room for another one? I had to think that. Is there really room? And it, it became quite evident that there was. Where else can we talk about certain things like freedom, politics, economics, and so forth in a Christian context, an ecumenical Christian context. There's almost nothing like that. I mean, the closest thing is like faith and economics. I, I published a book review there of uh, Sam Gregg's recent book, For God and Profit. Great journal. Hope to be uh, continually involved. But uh, I, I, I just know I'm not going to be able to, to publish certain things there on certain topics. And it's mainly for e economics. What about other issues? What about political philosophy? What about history? What about humanities, theology? So, yeah, I'm not going to just uh, read off to the description, but you can read it on the website. It's already posted, I believe. So we're really excited. This is a call for papers, uh, and, and the, the full requirements are on the website, and uh, we hope to have a great—I I just got an email, well, 
you know what? I just got an email 10 seconds ago from the same person. A PhD student wants to publish something uh, with areas related to this. And uh, that's a great opportunity. Graduate students, uh, for those who want to uh, do book reviews, I got I, I sent out, as you know, Nick, a, a list of over a dozen different books that need to be reviewed for this kind of journal. And so, uh, you know, lots of room, and it's going to be exciting. And hopefully, by the grace of God, the inaugural edition will come out in January, uh, basically one year from now, uh, a little less than one year from now, in 2018. So that's... That's kind of the goal, and uh, we need to get submissions sent to to me by August, ideally, uh, to get into that inaugural edition. Hopefully, listeners will be on the lookout for that. Yeah, and uh, some of the, the, the manuscripts uh, may be published prior to the release of the initial right. first volume. We will be, this journal will be open access, so we don't want to have any restrictions on there to keep people from getting the research because like we just talked about earlier, we want this to actually go out and impact the church, impact the academy, get into the seminaries and start moving the conversation. We're not just going to publish for the sake of publishing. We want impactful stuff that's actually going to get out there and be a blessing to the church and move the conversation in the right direction. So if you're listening and you are a graduate student, a seminary student, and you're interested in maybe doing some book reviews, uh, you can contact us. If you want to produce some original research, uh, please reach out to us. You can reach Jamin at CLR, that's Christian Libertarian Review, CLR at libertarianchristians.com. And also, if you want to reach us regarding the podcast, you can write to podcast at libertarianchristians.com or visit us at libertarianchristians.com slash contact. Uh, As always, I will put out a call for support. LCI is supported entirely by donors like you, and believe me, we appreciate you standing behind us. This is a ministry. It is our passion to be able to go out and be this alternative voice in the church for liberty, for freedom, in the context of the Lordship of Christ and the Christian faith. So please support us at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. That's it for this episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Jamin Hubner, for joining us. Jamin, it was great to have you, and hopefully we'll have you back soon. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. 